You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, this is Nikita. I'm going to do a quick audio version of the intro that I've already recorded for this episode. Uh, the reason I'm doing a separate one is I spend quite a bit of time uh, kind of showing off my new audio setup, like literally pointing the camera to different uh, elements in the signal chain. And then I realized it's not going to work in the audio version. So I'm going to make this a bridged thing. Um, apart from the audio setup, which is new and is supposed to be very good and uh, I need your feedback on, uh, you need to tell me whether the sound of this intro actually is better than uh, what, you know, the way it, it used to sound. Uh, and if it is not, then I need to change something. I'm doing something incorrectly. Um, apart from that, I also talked about three things. John's book, Mind Body Problems, is out now in paperback. It's on Amazon. You can order it. You should. It's a really good book. And uh, the cover is mine. I made the cover. Secondly, I'm launching a YouTube channel of my own uh, that will have my interviews, but also some other stuff that I haven't figured out yet, uh, but I'm, I'm, there are different kinds of ideas that I have. Uh, you can listen to, you can watch the video version of this intro. I talk a little more about that. The link to the channel is going to be in the video description. Uh, if you like the things I'm doing at Meaning of Life, you should subscribe to that because uh, there'll be more stuff there. And uh, the third thing is I'm also launching a Patreon page, which will have other kinds of content there. So there'll be There'll be writing and drawings and just different kinds of experimentation that I'm not comfortable sharing with like the whole of the internet, but with a small circle of people who explicitly asked for it and even paid like a buck a month that I'm going to be doing there. And I'm hoping to make it into a little experimental ground for myself, a little laboratory for uh, coming up with new stuff. So the links are going to be in the description. Um, and there's a, a longer explanation of all of all of this in the video version of this episode. And I'm going to make a cut here. And uh, from this point, the video and the audio version of the intro is going to be the same. You don't need to know all of that. Uh, anyway, cut. Now the conversation. Yeah, the conversation you're about to hear is also kind of an experiment in its own right. Because, um, you know, normally the way these interviews go is... I'm the interviewer and then there's like an expert, like some person who possesses knowledge or expertise or, or something. And I'm trying to just make it easier for them to share that thing that they possess. Um, so the roles are pretty defined and, and my role is kind of a passive one. Uh, I'm not doing a whole lot of sharing of my own thoughts and ideas and stuff of that nature. This conversation with John is different because we just talked. We just spent an hour and a half talking about depression, theology, politics, um, art and literature, and how all of these things come together. Psychedelics are, of course, mentioned. Buddhism is mentioned. Uh, there's just, it's, it's a very free flow and fun conversation. I enjoyed it a lot. We talked about the nature of, of this thing of podcasting too, because, uh, it's really interesting for me to watch 
this genre evolve and change and develop because it's it, i think it's really something new i think there's something's happening to the line between private or personal conversations and public conversations so this one was recorded a couple of months ago it was uh right before christmas last year and so up until today when it's going to be published it was just a, an experience it was just two human beings talking uh developing a kind of a friendship like we've never met and we haven't we haven't had many conversations this might be like the fourth one but it's a real conversation it's you know an hour and a half of undivided attention uh to all kinds of topics but to talking to to finding you know a common language um and sharing experiences personal experiences as well and and ideas and thoughts and um worldviews and so you know if it never was published it would still be a worthwhile thing like it's a it, it was a meaningful exchange uh that uh was enjoyable and interesting and uh, and worthwhile for me and for John but now it's going to become so it was a private conversation now it's going to be a public conversation first and then it'll be a collective conversation i hope because you guys can um join in the comment section right and that is like what the fuck is that the, the newspapers didn't do that uh tv didn't do that there's uh it, it it's it's that you know global village thing that McLuhan talked about we really are next door neighbors all of us now and we are talking all of us together and we can create new meanings and we can uh share our life with each other in some way this is sounding a little too wishy-washy i don't really know what wishy-washy means i've heard that term i think i know what it means by the way it sounds but i don't know anyway uh, that's a thing we talked about among other things um i think the first few words that john says are not audible um it was the beginning of the conversation i just asked him to say something as i was testing the sound and uh he said sure this is john horgan in the fucked up country of the united states of america just before the holidays everybody's worried that the world is about to go off a cliff but we're still going to celebrate see this is this is one of the things i want to ask you about I I I feel Americans are freaking out a little too much. <laughs> I would like to hear you talk me down. <laughs> I mean maybe it's easier just, you know, from the outside, but it's like so you have a bad president, you know, what else is new? Well, it would be pretty funny for a Russian be, to be telling an American to chill out because <laughs> his leader isn't as bad as he thinks he is. <laughs> We might we we might end up talking about about the end of the world feelings that, that you seem to be experiencing. Uh, I don't think I want, I'm the only one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that also is a sense I'm getting. And I, you know, I it's not that I am overly optimistic about how things are going to pan out. My sense is, you know, the way people think about the future of the world has more to do with 
whether they exercise and whether they get enough vitamins than than with the actual like facts of what's going on. Yeah. Um, to what degree is our depression? You know, you can flip that uh, in in different ways. To what degree is depression or happiness um, rational? Uh, a uh, a reasonable response to what's going on in our personal lives or or uh, in the world. Um, my own experience of depression makes me think, I mean, depression is almost the unreasonable, the most unreasonable uh, mood. On the other hand, when you're in it, uh-huh. it feels uh-huh. all too rational. You know, so my experience of depression was this, um, was a really deep visceral sense that life didn't mean anything and that there was no point in going from one moment to the next. And therefore it became this huge chore. Yeah. Moment by moment, it was totally exhausting. And I realized when I was really depressed and that this was in the early eighties, after all this stuff had happened to me, including this giant psychedelic trip. Um, I just, uh, I, I realized that that was a kind of very clear vision of how life actually is. Mm-hmm. And that, and I realized how much in my ordinary mood, I just kind of blithely carry on doing all these stupid things to pass the time uh, because I'm not really paying attention to the passage of time. And depression for me was this acute awareness. Um, I guess it's, it's, you know, now, now that I think about it, kind of the, the, uh, the flip side of enlightenment. So enlightenment is you also have a sense of um, the meaninglessness of much of what you do to pass the time in life, but you're filled with joy. And when you're depressed, I think you see that even joy is kind of, yeah, Silly, right? I hear you. Yeah, I, I had I, I recently had this conversation. Yeah, I'm not depressed at the moment, nor have I been in the you know recent days. But I had I had this feeling recently. I was in a taxi uh, going home, looking at the Saint Petersburg in the winter. Is not you know uh, it's gloomy. Yeah. I kind of like it, but it's gloomy. I remember when I first came to America, I was uh, I had this road trip that started. The starting point of the road trip was Seattle, and then we drove south. And you know, as we go through different towns, people would ask, "So, you know, where are you going from? Where are you going to?" And when I mentioned we started from Seattle, and this was like early spring, I think we 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 left Seattle maybe at the end of February, and. Uh, Whenever I would mention Seattle, people people would have this facial expression like, oh, that's a gloomy place, man. That must be hard. And I came to Seattle from St. Petersburg. I just spent at the time, I spent half a year in St. Petersburg from autumn to the end of winter. And to me, that was like, what the fuck are you talking about? How is Seattle gloomy? I arrived and the, the grass was green in, in February. That's not gloomy. You have a little bit of rain, a little bit of clouds. <laughs> the relativism, but, the relativism yeah, yeah. of it all. 
if, if you're maybe it, it's not the state you're in, it's your movement from one state to another. And if the better one, if the one you're moving toward is better, it makes you feel good. If it's worse, then you you don't feel so good. But but depression is going beyond that, no matter where you are. Yeah, you feel so, shitty. So I wanted to say, uh, so I was in the stacks and I was looking outside the window and I had this memory, not a memory, like a a, a recognition of I was I I noticed the state that I was in that is familiar to me and has been familiar to me, you know, from childhood. And it's, I think people have different, like different people have different ways of relating to not just, you know, depression or happiness, but like how you measure happiness, sadness, uh, whether living is worth it or not, all, all that kind of stuff. And my sense was, what you just said, you know, I relate to that. A chore. It's there's a difference between sometimes you feel life is, you know, a beautiful creative act. You create reality with every breath that you take, and you're, you know, in a conversation, and there's something new happening, and you're, you know, every day you might experience something new, create something new, articulate something worthwhile, hear somebody say something meaningful, or you might feel that all of that is happening but you're not that it's not that compelling you're not that into it it's we are continuing to play a game creating these realities but what's the fucking point can we you know does it does, do we need to do that is there is it anything more than a distraction i think that relates to your you know the, the big psychedelic trip that you bring up every once in a while that god is creating this just to distract himself from something, you know, that he doesn't want to face. Yeah. I, and then I try to remind myself because I still think that there is this reality to the insight that, and, th and this is something I've taken away from a bunch of my trips, but I, I've also had it with meditation and just, it's a spontaneous feeling that I've had throughout, throughout my life. That um, that there's a miraculousness to every single moment of life as well. That, uh, that part of the the meaninglessness of it, the that the fact that there is no plan, that we're we're just here, and there's no reason for us to be here, um, and it's infinitely improbable that we are here, especially you know right in this moment with all the randomness of it that that is that should fill us with bliss we should be we should be amazed by every single instant of life and what's weird to me is that somehow those two insights that life is totally meaningless there really is no point in going on from moment to moment that that can exist that that is true but so was this blissful happiness and gratefulness that we can feel moment by moment, regardless of the actual circumstances of the moment. Um, I don't know if, if people who say that they're enlightened have that kind of experience of the, you know, the, the darkness and the light, 
of the same time. I guess I should more, watch more of Bob's interviews with people who say that they're enlightened to see if that's their um, their experience. For me, it's generally kind of an oscillation back and forth instead of being in the two states at exactly the same time. There's, a, you know, one of the, the most recent book by Pelevin has a beautiful kind of, I don't know what it is, a metaphor. It, it seems, I often feel that his books, you know, you can read them as metaphors, but I think he's actually talking very directly about something that he has experienced or he's continuing to experience. And the book is, uh, there's this, there are two plot lines, one about a group of men and one about a group of women. And the, the male part is, is there's this group of oligarchs, very rich people who have everything that they, you know, can want. They have all the luxuries of life and they're looking for something more than, than that. Um, but a deeper kind of pleasure. They want to get something more out of life because they already have all the material stuff and all the, you know, usual pleasures that people can afford through money. And, uh, there's this guy who created a startup, uh, which is the idea is that there's like a, a piece of technology that can transmit a state of mind from one person to another. So you put like EEG on one person and on, on the head of one person and on the other, and you get to experience what that first person is experiencing. And so he partnered with a bunch of Buddhist monks from Burma and got them. So the idea is you get, you, you're guided to enlightenment, to all of these steps. Uh, it, and it's very technical. Like that part of the book, it's because I know some people who are really into this, you know, they have this uh, rigorous meditation, meditative practice. And I've heard, you know, them describe the states. Uh, it's called jhanas, I think, in Buddhism. Different, like, states of mind that you can get to. Uh, they have nine of them or something. And I think the, the last one is what you call enlightenment. Um, and that book, like, you, you, it definitely is talking about his direct experience. When he's describing these states, it's quite technical and uh, precise. And, and so the, 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 the kind of, uh, hook, the, the turning point of the book is that they get to go through these states with the help of this Buddhist monk. They're not actually achieving this by themselves, by restructuring their own psyche. They're, they're kind of, uh, piggyback writing on, on, on this monk. And at one point, they get I forget how it goes. At some point, the monk leaves because they, they're, you know, abusing this, this whole thing in some way. But, uh, at one point, they get very frustrated with this. They, so they, they like their journey is interrupted because, uh, the monk decides to not do this anymore, but they've gotten far enough in this process to see all of the, uh, you know, fundamental qualities of existence according to Buddhism that everything is uh, passing, there's nothing permanent in this world, everything is just, there's qualia that combines into, you know, what we experience as pleasure or sadness or whatever, but fundamentally all of this is empty, there's not no substance to, not, to, to any of this, and they're stuck in this place in between, and they're, 
and they're not happy with it. They're like, I used to enjoy my life. I used to eat a good meal and have fun. I used to have sex and it felt good. And now I can have sex, but I'm just experiencing, okay, so this is what I see and this is what I feel. And there's a fleeting sense of this. And at this second, you know, I'm experiencing this. And then that goes away and there's no fucking point to it whatsoever. And there's this emptiness. And so, uh, they get the guy who started the, the startup who sold this idea to them and they threaten him, you know, to, uh, throw him, uh, you know, into the water or something, if he doesn't bring them back to the normal state of a person who's not very any, anywhere close to enlightenment, but can enjoy life. And then they go through the plan that he comes up with. He's like, okay, I consulted with, you know, the Buddhist literature on this. There are precepts that monks take when they, you know, go into the step path to enlightenment. How about we just break every precept there is? We're just, we'll find a way to make, you know, do everything wrong and maybe we'll devolve back into a normal human state. I love that. By the way, I just have to say, since I, I don't know if we've talked about Victor Pelavin before, but um, we did not. you turned me on to him you know, months ago and, uh, and, you know, you thought he would appeal to me and he really appealed to me a lot. So I think I've read uh, four of his novels now. And he's got this kind of like a psychedelic, zen, nihilistic um, outlook on things that I just love. But also he – I feel like he's a warm, compassionate person under underneath it all that he actually he, – he portrays humans as monsters um, and completely self-deluded and cruel but – but he likes us anyway, you know? I think so, yeah. It's it's kind of a question, right? It's, you know, not only in the books, but in interviews, in, in he seems like, he, he doesn't say a lot of nice things about us. Yeah. Us or the world we're in or reality, he seems to be, he seems to be kind of, it kind of goes back to the, the issue, like the depression thing that you raised. You know, there are, as I said, many ways to relate to whether this is worthwhile or not. And his take, it seems like there's no escape in this. I got trapped in this reality of perceiving myself as existing. And it seems that through mostly meditation, he claims to have stopped doing psychedelics a long time ago. Um, but through whatever various practices, he seems to have gotten to the point where, you know, he subscribes to the Buddhist idea that it, this is fundamentally an illusion and, and, and an empty illusion at that. And, you know, as Buddhist, Buddhists uh, aim for nirvana, for liberation from this illusion from existence, he's kind of, he seems, I don't know if he's, trying to get there or what, but but many of his books are just filled with this idea that like a bitter kind of sense that we're trapped in a reality that's not really a reality and there's no getting away from it and every pleasure or sense of meaning that we find in it is 
also kind of a trick that we're playing on ourselves or it's not entirely clear what is planning planning on what God is planning on on himself, herself, themselves. Um, but yeah, there's definitely that quality to his to his work. And I'm I'm always I'm curious how somebody like that motivates himself to write. I would assume that you know our minds are complicated. That he's there's part of him that obviously is very creative. I feel as though he also sees himself as a social critic. So he thinks that the kind of hyper capitalism that we have in the United States now, and that Russia has in an even more cartoonish form, is really terrible. And he wants to point out how terrible it is, even though it gives us these fleeting pleasures and the joy of competition and, and all that, that it's really making us rotten at the core. Uh-huh. Um, but I just wanted to, I, I just wanted to um, get back to this, this question of, uh, you know, what, what we see when we're really seeing things as they are. I've been thinking about this recently and writing, working on a blog post about it because of an article um, in the New Yorker that goes back a couple of months by this really talented writer named Larissa Mc, McFarquhar. And um, I like everything that she's written. And in this piece, she's writing about people with dementia in nursing homes, which doesn't sound like a very promising topic. But um, it turns out that there has been this big debate for quite a while over how to treat people who were were really senile, um, whether to allow, whether to indulge their delusions or whether to keep trying to get them to confront reality and, um, and remember where they are, that they actually are in nursing homes, that they are 85 or 90 years old, that almost everybody that they know, all their friends and, uh, you know, their spouses, um, are dead. Uh, and it, so, the people who run these, this industry has gone back and forth in, in, in this question. And for a long time, it was thought that, uh, I guess there were some studies that showed if you keep reminding people um, of what reality is, that um, it's good for them, that they might actually come out of their fog a little bit, uh, if only temporarily. Uh, but recently, things have shifted the other way toward um, going with their delusions and even creating the the setting in the nursing homes to feed their delusions. So so some nursing homes now are, they have a central space that looks like a little town square in some all-American town, almost like in Disney World, you know, like a, huh. a something that's very nostalgic and um, and you'll have stores that are just fake they're not real stores but they create the illusion of a town and there will even be a bus stop that can take you somewhere else and so people will go to the bus stop and sit there and they'll think that the bus is going to to come and pick them up and take them somewhere else and the and the the aides the you know the nurses um don't they don't destroy the illusion. They, you know, somebody says, Oh, I'm going to go and visit my, uh, visit my, uh, my sister in the town next door. And is sitting at the bus stop. The nurse will say, okay, that's great. You know, I hope that bus will come soon. And then of course the person soon forgets 
um, what they're doing at the bus stop and then they just go back to their, to their room. And it, you know, so this, the question is, and actually this is something that's posed in the matrix really, really brilliantly. Uh, there's, you know, there's the bad guy who betrays his friends. Um, and the evil agent who's gotten him to do this bad guy's name is Cypher. And the evil agent Smith says to Cypher, okay, what do you want in exchange for betraying your friends? And Cypher says, I want you, I want to live in the matrix. Um, and I want you to give me the best life possible. I want to be rich. I want to be famous. I want to be an actor. He can't think of any better life than being an actor. And he says, and I want to, I don't want to remember any of this. I don't want to have any connection to reality. And, um, who can really argue with that as a choice? Uh, especially since it's possible that it's illusions all the way down. I mean, the right. choice is hard enough if, if you have a sense of there being something called reality and then this set of illusions that we, we live in. And of course we all live in a, in a world of illusions to some extent. We are always denying certain things that we don't want to uh, confront. But um, if you have a really radical metaphysics that says that it's illusions all the way down, then why not just pick an illusion that makes you happy? Um, and and what I love about this article by McFarquhar is that, you know, this is normally the kind of thing that philosophers talk about and it's, it doesn't really mean anything. But this is a this question of happy delusion versus painful reality is something that relatives of these people with dementia face and they have to decide what kind of nursing home they want to put their loved one in. Uh, but also you can sign advanced directives. Like let's say you're getting the early signs of Alzheimer's. You can mm-hmm. sign an advanced directive that will tell people how you want to be treated once you really become demented. Do you, do you want yeah. them to keep yeah. reminding you that you're just this old senile person or to feed some kind of fantasy that you have that makes you feel better? Well, I have a bunch of reactions to that. First is I just, I've heard about the bus stop thing a long time ago uh, and it was presented differently. That was presented. I don't remember where I, where I've heard or read about it, but uh, it was presented as a solution to a problem that some of these homes have with patients running away. And they said that like people often, you know, want to run away and you have to catch them somewhere, you know, near the home. And they figured out a way to solve it. They put a fake bus stop and the person is sitting there waiting for a bus that will never come. And you don't have to run around catching these people. Just they forget that uh, at some point they come back because they forget what they were doing in the bus stop. So it it has a kind of a sinister to me a, a, a sinister ring to it. Like you're create. Oh, you're still there? Yeah, I, I I lost you for a few seconds actually. So this thing about um, retirement homes, uh, yeah, that's a really good kind of case study or something that a way to think about this 
deeper, more, uh, not necessarily deeper, but broader issue of are we all patients in some sort of a mental institution yeah. or, you know, what is going on? Um, it's, you know, the, the thing about, I, I listened to a, a conversation, I think it was on the Rogan's podcast, there was uh, an AI researcher, a very kind of eccentric, weird, interesting guy. Um, and Rogan asked him about the simulation theory. And I really like the response of, of this guy that I, I think it should... I, I, I'm, I'm kind of perplexed as to why that is not everybody's response to this question. So Rogan asked him something to extend over, like, you know, what do you think about the simulation theory? It all could be a simulation. And he asked, a simulation of what? And Rogan was kind of like, he just continued to like expand on the idea that it might be all an illusion, right? It might be some sort of a program running on some sort of a computer and we are all, you know, experiencing a world that doesn't exist. But, you know, that's fine. That a way of looking at things that I think is way older than the current iteration with the simulation theory and the computer involved in it. And, you know, Gnostics had a very similar idea without the technology to base this idea around. But even if it is a simulation, then the question is, what is the purpose of that simulation? Who is running it? What, you know, what are we engaged in here? And the same goes for all of these ideas of, uh, you know, illusory nature of reality. To me, you know, one way to look at it is to point out that it's illusion. It's not real in some sense. But you can look at the same thing. Like, I mean, like, great fiction is also about things that have never happened. When you read a book by Dostoevsky, you can say, well, none of this happened. You know, this, you, you, can, you can focus on the fact, the fact that this, this is a story that never happened, but it conveys some sort of a truth. It's compelling to us, you know, even though it, it, it never happened because it says something true about things that do happen, maybe truer than any one particular factual story. Right? right, and so if we look at our reality as illusory, the question is what kind of illusion this is. What and and we since we seem to be playing a part in the illusion, at least that's how it feels. Then, you know, it becomes a kind of a creative enterprise, and then it's your job to figure out what it is that you're trying to do with this. And it's like the we started with the the topic of depression, like that sense they recently had, and it, it just rang so it was so familiar from from like kindergarten times to me that you know we keep creating this, we keep there's no escape in this, you just wake up every goddamn day and there's no way out of this the world continues to exist and you continue to exist in it and you need to do things you know there's it just goes on and sometimes it feels exciting and you're drawn into it and sometimes you kind of feel what is the goddamn point and that to me like the, the the way i relate to this is through metaphors of any sort of creative work you if you're writing a book or whatever Sometimes it feels like 
you know, something is just flowing through you and it's exciting. You give existence to ideas that enamored you in the first place. And sometimes you're stuck with, you know, why, why, what, what was the point of, of, of doing this? What I'm, I'm gonna, I can create something, but do I need to? Is it, you know, what is the purpose of this thing? Yeah. This brings me to another question. You've, You've recently just posted, reposted an older post of yours on, on Scientific American that mentioned the problem of evil. Mm-hmm. And you you mentioned it in the book and in some of the conversations that you've had on the podcast, The Mind-Body Problems. And um, so is that a thing that, is that like a, a persistent issue that you are concerned with? Yes. Uh so I I'm asking cuz it's like it's is kind of confusing to me cuz I I don't totally get why that is such a big question. I I it must be because I was raised Catholic. And hmm. um the older I get the more I realize how much you know I I I decided that I wasn't that I didn't buy Catholic Catholicism anymore by the time I was maybe 11 or 12, but, um, it's just shaped me. I mean, intellectually, Mm -hmm. I think I'm still a Catholic in that I care about, um, you know, I worry about the meaning of life and, uh, the purpose of life. And I worry about, I, I, um, I, I worry about good and evil. I care about human suffering in a way that I think is kind of Catholic. Um, and so, and maybe it's just as simple as wondering where, okay, let's just say talking about, uh, simulation theory, what's the point of the simulation? And essentially, Mm -hmm. you know, if we just stop talking about God and let's say it's some super intelligent alien and another, um, parallel universe or something, that created us for whatever reason, then, you know, that's the question. What was the reason? And, um, and the question is particularly urgent and important when you consider that life is so hard. And, right. um, you know, if, if this is a simulation, the pain feels pretty real, mm-hmm. you know, and that the, and you can't to say that pain is an illusion is senseless. Pain is pain, um, whatever its source might be. Um, and so that question, if I, I care about what the hell we're doing here and whether there is some kind of plan or purpose. And the reason that I keep coming back to that is because the world seems very designed. I just cannot believe that all this came, came about through um, through a series of, you know, a long string of coincidences. And so then that's what keeps bringing me, bringing me back to the question of what's it for? What's the purpose? And, um, what's our relationship to the creator if there is a creator? Right. And, uh, why would the creator make life so hard? And there are lots of different answers that people have, have come up with. Um, as you know, you've read about this crazy trip that I had, but the answer I came up with is that, um, 
you know, God is doesn't like that there is a God, that there is this one solitary mind that somehow came into existence. And this mind doesn't even know how it came into its existence and realizes that there's no reason for it to exist. I'm talking about God or the, you know, the, the, the thing behind the simulation or whatever. And so is freaking out and having this identity crisis and creates this, all this reality here, uh, in reaction to this identity crisis. And it's got to be a compelling, urgent, um, simulation or illusion or whatever you want to call it, a story that it's telling, that it's invented. And, and that's why, um, there has to be suffering. The stakes have to be high. Uh, it's, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of, it's a pretty fucked up theology, but it's the only, <laughs> it's the only thought theology that I can come up with. And, and one of the implications also is that, you know, this is going back to the question of, illusion versus reality, um, the premise of philosophy and science and all our sort of, and religion, all our truth-seeking modes is that, of course, there are, you know, we have various false ideas about the world, but that, even to talk about the world in that way, assumes that there's a ground of being. I love that that phrase, you know, the ground mm-hmm. of being. That's, that's what everything is resting on. And... Um, you know, my my biggest trip, mystical epiphany, told me that there is no ground of being. And that even if you're God, you're this infinitely intelligent alien, um, smart enough to create this simulation. You don't know what's going on. You're not on a ground of being. It's... Um, it's illusions all the way down or it's just uh it's just these false ideas that we as stories all the way down you know uh i when we when you were talking before i was thinking about when well, you're talking about dostoevsky <clears throat> i was thinking about uh joyce and um his his great work that nobody can possibly understand finnegan's wake have you mm-hmm. by any chance have you ever I have I haven't I haven't even tried Finnegan's Wake I think I have Ulysses on a bookshelf but that Joyce is I think something that I will never be able to get to I'm really interested like all of the things that point to his work like other people that I admire or get excited about their work are excited about Joyce problem is I don't think there's any point in reading a translation cuz you know everything would be lost there and it's not fucking possible, I think, for a non-native English speaker to read the original. I, like, I tried. I read a page, and I'm not entirely sure what I've read. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of... I sort of feel like I relate to Joyce because I'm Irish Catholic. I mean, that, that's, mm-hmm. that's how I was raised. And for some reason, Joyce really speaks to me. Um, but But his work is really hard. Ulysses is really difficult and Finnegan's Wake is completely impenetrable but I took a course on it um and so I was forced to read it and it was like uh it was like a long drug trip I sort of entered into the world but and and enough to sort of get this the metaphysics of it and by that I mean sort of 
you know, he's trying to present a, a, a full world and to get at this question of what's real and what's illusion. And the whole book is actually a dream. Mm-hmm. Um, you're sort of in the dream of this narrator, but then there are dreams nested with dream within dreams. Um, and, and by the end of it, I realized that Joyce also was saying that there's no ground of being there's, there's no, um, you know, there's no basic truth on which all the dreams are resting. It's not like you can wake up and then, or, you know, you're leaving Plato's cave or, and, and then you see what's really going on. Joyce is saying that it's dreams all the way down. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the way I would put it is that the, the, you know, if you want to talk about it in Catholic terms about the creator versus us is the creations, um, the, uh, the creator is just dreaming us. Uh, and then, then the question is what, what you're supposed to do with that kind of insight or belief or whatever you want to call it. It's just something that to me gives me a little pleasure. It gives me the illusion of feeling uh-huh. that I have stuck my head out of the cave a little bit. But of course, even that idea is contradicted by what I'm saying. If, if this is this, if there is no ground of being, that means you can't ever leave the cave. You're stuck in the cave constantly. And, or you can leave the cave and think you're outside it, but you're just in another cave. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it, it, it actually gives me pleasure to think that it doesn't make life meaningless to me. I get pleasure out of talking to people about it. Because it lifts me out of my uh, life a little bit. Yeah, I had so as you were speaking, I thought of several things. One is so the the problem of evil thing to me is kind of like a non-issue in a sense, and I'll explain what I mean. Here's I know you're a fan of Louis C.K. Have you seen Horace and Pete? What's it called? Horace and Pete. No. Oh, you should you should definitely watch it. It's one of the best things he's done. It's uh, like a TV show that he just put on his website, uh, an episode after an episode. And he's that I, I was so impressed by this. And, you know, apart from just the the thing itself is 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 amazing. It's also a, a very interesting experiment in how he released it. He like filmed the whole thing in secret, funded it himself, and then. At a random Saturday or something, people who are subscribed to his like email list on the site got this message that just said, "Hey, I just made a thing. It's on the site. You can go check it out." And you go there, and it's the first episode. But it doesn't say that it's the first episode of a series or anything. There's just, "I made a thing," and you can get it for five bucks or something. And if you Google the title at that time. You just find other people who are saying, I just got this email from Louis C.K. saying that he's made a thing. What is it about? And so everybody was confused. And you watch the thing, and even after you finish the first episode, it's not clear whether it's, was it a movie? Is this all? Or is there going to be a continuation? And so he, like, week after week, he put out a new episode. And it's a beautiful, beautiful work, and it's sad and kind of grim, but funny at times, too. Um... The reason I'm bringing this up is he, 
I listened to an interview of his after he released it, and uh, you saw like at several points in the story in the in the show he plays one of the characters himself, and he cries several times in the show. And I remember, like, the first time I saw him cry, I thought, wow, Louis C.K. is getting good at acting. And then it, at one point, I even felt, like, maybe the third time, I felt, okay, so he learned how to cry, and now he can't stop. He's he's really kind of abusing this new skill of his. And I listened to the to an interview, and it turned out that this was not in the script. He was not supposed to cry. He was crying because he got... You know, he cared about the characters so much and he cared about the story so much that he felt overwhelmed with emotion in certain scenes. And so he was suffering with the character that he was playing. And more importantly, the story ends, I will not reveal what the story is about, but it ends, you know, there's suffering in how it ends. And he said in this interview that he realized where the story is headed before he wrote the final episodes. And he took a break, like a couple of, like he's done most of the work and he knows there's just the ending that needs to be written. And he postponed it for like a month or something because he didn't want to write that ending. He was hoping that maybe he'll find something else. And that didn't lead to anything. He he wrote the end and he, he knew that it has to go in that direction. And so, you know, problem of evil. If there is a God that can do anything that he wants with the story and that he loves the people in that story, in the world, why would he make them suffer? That to me is not that big of a question if you consider any sort of creative act where like Louis C.K. could theoretically write a very happy ending to that story. He clearly cared for the characters that he created, but he couldn't in some sense write. If he did write a happy ending, that would be a cop-out. That would be, you know, that would be a lack of artistic integrity because he was not writing a Hallmark postcard, you know. An artist writing a story like that is trying to express something true and the way he feels about, the, he knows a little bit about life and about suffering, and it's a part of life, and so that needs to be expressed. And so that, to me, like, if there is some sort of an intelligence that is creating what we're in, I'm hoping that they're not creating this you know, for banal reasons, and, and uh, you know, I'm hoping that there there is, not just hoping, but when I'm not depressed, it feels like, like we are all part of this creation, and we can sense our involvement in it, and when you're not totally depressed, you feel like there's some meaning to it, and and meaning to suffering, and meaning to, you know, the happy moments of life. And so, why is there suffering? Well, because it's there. Because if, like, you know, if you're you're writing a story and you make your character suffer, that's not because you want them to suffer. It's because you know that that's part of the story, right? Yeah. What what does that mean? Well, I have a couple of of responses to that. Part of the problem of evil for me is not just suffering in itself, but 
the unfairness of how suffering is meted out. Right. So um, I think in addition to growing up Catholic, I also grew up in a pretty privileged um, background. And, uh, you know, so my, my dad was a pretty successful businessman. And, um, and I, from the time I was, I don't know, maybe 10 or so, I went to private schools until I eventually got kicked out of a private school that I went to. But um, I always felt guilty. You know, I'd look out in the world and I'd see people who had so much less than I did. And I felt that uh, I just thought it was unfair. And it, I, I still have that. And um, and if God is loving and just, then why, you know, I, I agree with you that um, that there's a lot to be said for how we can we can share each other. We can share our suffering. We can we can talk about it. We can commiserate. We can show each other pity and compassion. But some people really get fucked over by life. Yeah. And others and I'm 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 not one of those people. I mean, of course, bad things have happened to me, but uh, they're trivial compared to the bad things that happened to. Um, so I'd say probably a majority of people who ever have lived. And um, this becomes an interesting question also when you consider that we're we're doing our best to try to make life more fair and reduce suffering. And according to various measures, life is getting better for more and more people all the time. And if, if you want to get sort of more sci-fi about it, there's also the possibility, you know, you, me you mentioned this novel, uh, the Pelvin novel, uh, in which there's a technology that can transfer the happiness of monks to other people. Well, that reminded me of this scientist that I actually interviewed for my book, Rational Mysticism, his name is Michael Persinger, and he claimed to have invented a, a device that could electromagnetically tickle your brain so that you could have religious experiences. Mm. And he didn't call it the God machine, but journalists started calling it the God machine. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be, it, you know, I tried it out and it didn't work on me. And um, Richard Dawkins tried it out and he didn't have an experience of God. It turned out that it was effective mainly through the power of suggestion. People knew that they were going into the God machine and some of them would have these experiences. But it raises the question, what if it's not inconceivable at all um, that we could have devices or drugs or genetic engineering that could reliably reduce our or even eliminate our pain? Um, and I mean, I know people who are sort of into this idea and they say, all we would have is experiences of different levels of bliss. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, the neuroscientists are all over this. If you could, so imagine an antidepressant that actually worked. The antidepressants we have now are very ineffective. They're terrible. They make a lot of people feel worse over the long run, but, um, it's conceivable that scientists will actually figure out all the different neural processes that are correlated with our our feelings of sadness, melancholy, depression, existential despair, and be able to counteract those. And we'll, you know, we'll have the equivalent of, I don't know, we'll have completely self-directed moods. You want to be happy? How do you, 
How do you feel about that? Is that is well, it's it's very disturbing. It's it's sort of yeah. you know this was Brave New World was about the, the novel Brave New right. World was sort right. of about this possibility and um, and made it a nightmare. And I I think that you know there is too much unhappiness now. I guess the question is how much unhappiness can you eliminate and unhappiness encompassing everything from, you know, all the many varieties of, of uh, pain and suffering. How far could we go technologically toward eliminating unhappiness on demand and still be human? Um, yeah, I kind of feel, I mean, if unhappiness exists, I kind of feel it must have a function. I'm certainly like just thinking on a personal level. If I am really sad, I don't want to take a drug that is just going to make me unsaid. I want to experience the sadness and usually something comes out out of it. It usually, you know, is is worthwhile to feel, you know, that part of the of the spectrum of human emotion too. Yeah. There's, you said something that made me think, what did you just say just now? It made, made me think of, um, there's, there's one of the, uh, there's an idea that what we are engaged with, what we're, we're going through is a kind of a process maybe of healing or, or of, of a, an incomplete work getting closer to completion and uh well so one way that i like to to look at things is is through this lens of gnosticism which you know i'm not i'm not a well-educated person <laughs> the way i get these like i get a part of an idea i read something and then uh you know i just think about it on my own and so i'm not i'm never really sure whether an idea that I have is something that I've learned from somebody or I, you know, got a part of it and watched the rest and then I have whatever I have as a result. But the way I understand the kind of creation myth of Gnosticism is there is, a, I guess, a kind of a ground of being in their, in their uh, cosmology. So there's the real God, they, they call it the unknowable, unknowable father, the source of all creation. And from that source, there are kind of like these concentric circles of emanations from it. And the very last of them is called Sophia, wisdom. And she's so far away from the source that she kind of is losing contact with that fundamental source of all creation. She is herself a continuation of that creation, you know, the, the, the frontier of creation, pure, beautiful, perfect creation. But she's so far from the source that she's kind of lost and she really wants to continue this creation, um, but she doesn't quite get the rules because she's so far away from, from the beginning. And so in an attempt to continue this process or another way they formulate it is to know the unknowable father which is, you know, you can do that. That's why it's called unknowable. Um, or, or, or to create without a sanction from this, this source. She creates something, and it's not good. 
what she creates, it's described as an abortion, it's described as uh, a mistake, and she looks at it and feels, she goes through shame and fear and uh, you know, all of these negative emotions that anybody who has tried to create something good and created something very just you know you try to to write a story and it's just the worst kind of banal shit that there is you don't feel good about yourself and then i think the way or at least one of the ways the story goes is those emotions that she went through kind of condensed and became this world the matter that we're in and this creature that she created that that caused all of those emotions is the character that we know from the Old Testament as the god of that uh, narrative. And so, and that creature, they call it the Demiurge, the architect, he is, you know, the ruler of this world. He he is the force that, uh, he's kind of the laws of this material world, but he is not the god, and he is blind to its his own creation he doesn't he thinks he just appeared and there's this world and he rules it and so he thinks he's the god but he's actually just this kind of like a, a you know the first draft that didn't come out well because she did she was not in the spot where she she wasn't doing the creative act in the way that's supposed to be done and so it just came out wrong and then this is kind of part of the story where I got distracted and I'm not entirely sure what happens next, but there's some, some way that she, uh, we, uh, our souls in that, in that myth is, uh, are like, uh, sparks of divine light from that ultimate reality that is trapped in this world of matter. And there's a way th- through which Sophia tried to, you know, get in touch with us and get, uh, give us a chance for, kind of redemption and so this whole elaborate story to me is one way of looking at at things as like whatever this is illusion work of art uh beautiful creation of omnipotent god it's continuing it's not fixed and maybe what we're doing is trying to get if you know if it seems meaningless, then our purpose is to try to imbue it with meaning. If it seems worthless, give it some worth. If it seems it's filled with suffering, try to elevate that suffering and bring some happiness into it. Or, or, or make that suffering worthwhile or something. And so if you look at it this way, then, you know, maybe, maybe a reality is let's say sick or something like that but if there is sickness then there is an opportunity to heal that and maybe that's what we're experiencing or or battling maybe we will get well maybe we will not but this is an unfinished process in which we're engaged and you know that's that's what's going on that's what you can play a part in yeah i um so after I wrote about this, uh, in the end of science came out in 1996, I described this drug trip that I'd had, um, 
in which I felt like I became God and I was having this identity crisis and, and, um, and it was really great. And then it was really terrible. Uh, and then people wrote to me after that and said, well, you're describing Gnosticism. Right. And, um, and so then I, I ended up reading a lot about Gnosticism and, uh, talked about it somewhat in, um, in my book, Rational Mysticism. I think even Gnosticism is consoling in a way because it does suggest it creates this narrative. Yeah, we're in a broken world, uh, a world of, uh, of illusion and, um, but we're striving to get out of it. There, there's this, the real God, uh, you know, above the, the demiurge that Gnostics call it, demiurge who's created this, this terrible world that we live in. And we can, there are things we can do to transcend this world and get to the, the real God who's really great. Uh, and, um, and this is also the narrative of Buddhism. It's the narrative of Christianity. It's the re- narrative of all religions which say that, yeah, this reality isn't so great, but um, there are things we can do to get to this level where everything is fantastic. And, um, and often it involves some kind of process of our merging with this great blissful perfection. And the problem that I had with this is that, that again, going back to, you know, this is all just my own subjective experience, but, but what the hell, that's all I've got. And we're all just wandering in the dark here. But my, my experience, um, led me to think that, uh, that the real God, if there is a real God, is not happy with being God. And that, therefore, this narrative we've created of trying to get up to that level, and then everything is going going to be okay, and there's this wonderful, loving, merging together of everything into some kind of oneness, it just doesn't work. And it's the, it's God's experience of oneness that is the problem. God is lonely and depressed. <laughs> like being all by himself. And this this creates the the identity crisis that I talked about, and and it it leads to to this uh, creation. I just wrote a. I write about what I love about blogging is that I I get to write about any kind of crazy shit. I write about this kind of stuff on my blog. I just piece mm-hmm. about um. So there was another blogger for Scientific American. Who wrote about the uh, the doctrine of oneness, which is so important to Buddhism and uh, and other um, other spiritual paths? And you know that when we're in these deep meditative state, meditative states, or enlightened, we realize that there's no difference between us and everything else, and there's really only one big thing. And and that uh, when you reach that state of realization, you feel really, really great. And then I wrote a post about how my own experiences of oneness were nightmarish. And I, and the problem for me is, and this is my intellect working on it, that there's no difference between there being just one thing and there being nothing at all. That life and existence and consciousness are all relational. You know, I'm here and you're there. And there's this thing happening between the two yeah. of us. And, um, and that's that's you know expanded. That's what life is. That's what existence is. If there's only me, 
then that's the same as there being nothing at all, even if I'm God. And so um, oneness is like this black hole. It's something that that we might approach and be thinking that everything is really great, but then that we reach a certain point and we're repelled by it, we realize that oneness is actually oblivion. It's not the highest form of consciousness. It's no consciousness at all. It's the equivalent of death. Anyway, this is what. So people out there who are thinking about taking psychedelics after after uh, reading Michael Pollan's book, um, How to Change Your Mind, or you know, hearing people talk about how cool psilocybin and microdosing yeah. is, psychedelics can take you into in some towards some really dark, scary revelations as well. And this is yeah. the revelation that I had, that at the end of all the spiritual paths, that heaven, that nirvana, all those that, you know, that perfection that we're all striving for is not so great. Yeah, yeah. There is another lens through which I often look at things is, and it's, again, just found a little piece of some of an ancient idea and then interpret it in my own way and 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 you know deal with that now uh, there is this notion christian gnostic as well notion of logos the, the the word of god in the beginning there was the word and the word was was with god and the word was god and the way i understand it, it that to me i i feel kind of confident having my own uh, interpretations of that because I often I almost feel like that once you introduce a concept like that it's a concept similar to the concept of God like when you talk to different people it's a legit question what do you mean when you say God because it, it's it's a word that points to something that can't be expressed and and the pointer itself is like that's enough you can you can start with that and then you create any kind of theology out of it and with this idea of logos, the way I understand it is it points to a fundamentally linguistic nature of reality and of God and of consciousness. And what I mean by linguistic is it's something like language in very broad sense of that word. And it's something like communication. So you can look at and then that that to me is a very rich idea that can be then applied in in so many different ways, and it's worth thinking about different ways of of applying it so if if what we're going through and what we are is some sort of a linguistic enterprise, some sort of a communication, then we know there are different kinds of communications. It might be one of the you know established idea in in in, in theology of different schools is that the world is like a book that you have the bible that you can read and get an understanding of what the world is or you can read nature you can read the the world around you and that's one way of looking at things and then if it's if if it's that if it's a, a story that's written then uh you know the questions rise why god wrote that story this way who are we are we readers of that story or our characters in that story a friend of mine suggested i'm still fat i don't know what to do with that idea but i'm very fascinated by, by it. I, I i you know 
listed these options. Are we the writer? Are we the characters? Are we the reader? Can there be more options? I can think, you know, of, of, of more. And she said, maybe we are somebody to whom the story is dedicated. Huh. That's nice. And I have no idea what to do with that now. It's been like a year since she said that. <laughs> I'm still fascinated by it, but can can figure out what to do with that with that option now. But so that is, you know, those are four options. But then maybe it's not a book. Maybe it's a conversation. In which case, you know, how do you have a good conversation? You try to listen and you try to talk when you have something worthwhile to say and you try to be empathetic. And what you were saying just now about oneness and um and 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 the way that can be equated to nothing at all the way i thought about it is if it is a conversation if let's say that you we can take that same gnostic myth and then sophia tried to have a conversation and she said something and then after she said something she felt horrible and got no response and what we, maybe what we're living in is a conversation that never happened maybe it's you know, she really wanted to talk to somebody and then she said something and there was no response and she's just feeling, she's stuck in in a loop of, of a conversation that never happened. You know, like like you're, you, meet, you, you see a pretty girl and you want to talk to her and instead you're talking to yourself about the possibility of talking to her and you're, maybe that's, that's our reality, right? Or maybe, and so it's, yeah, if, if, I, I can see how oneness can be God talking to himself like a madman on that bus stop. <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's, I, 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 those are all open questions to me, but, but I do have a sense that we are part of this thing. And so it depends on what we do with it. And, and, and what kind of role we play in it. And you know what? When we, I didn't have much, I do have some notes, uh, but, but fewer than, than I had when we first talked, when we did the first episode of the mind body problems. And my no my idea for today's conversations, conversation was it, it worked. I didn't, not the way I thought it would work, but, it just happened the way I hoped it would happen. The idea was, you know, the, the, when we recorded that one, um, we got some nice comments. And the comments that I liked the best said things along the lines of, you know, this is a really cool conversation. I felt like I was eavesdropping on, on you guys just talking uh, amongst yourself. And, you know, that felt nice. And I think this is part of what this whole podcasting thing like broadly is about the blurring of the line between private and public conversations you, you there are these podcasts now that you know there are two guys talking for three and a half hours and and they are having a conversation the main thing that's happening is two people having a conversation between themselves but then there are these millions of people who get to be a part of that conversation somehow and that's very exciting to me and I think worthwhile and I think it's changing the dynamic of communication globally in a in a good way. But reading those comments, I also thought that's not actually 
true in some sense. Like that conversation was like, you have a book that was published and we wanted to present it and we did that. And I prepared some questions and it largely went according to the plan. That was, that, that thing had a purpose outside of us talking. But at the same time, you know, you and I have known of each other's existence for a few years and we done some work together. We collaborated on the book. Um, but we also don't know each other. We've, we've had maybe what four, this might be the fourth conversation that we're having. Yeah. Or something, something like that. And I wanted to, the main idea that I had for this conversation is to say that upfront and then see what happens. <laughs> Cause I want to like, you have a set of issues in the book or now in the podcast and just, uh, you know, topics that keep, uh, appearing in your writing, in, in your thought. Do we have free will, the problem of evil? How does consciousness arise from matter? Does it arise from matter? Or maybe it's the other way around. I think adjacent to all of these questions is the question, the mystery of human communication. Like you and I are two apes that have figured a way out to use technology created by other apes to, you know, make noises at each other through this distance that is separating us. And it's not clear what exactly is going on here. It's not clear what, <laughs> what the purpose of this is, what we're engaged in. And that to me, like, I think any sort of theology or like cosmology or whatever metaphysics that you might have, it for it to be you know, worthwhile, it must be applicable to every small segment of life, every piece of life. It it needs to be, you, you should be able to experience it, relate to it in anything that you do. And so we're talking now, is that a lonely God talking to himself through masks of John Horgan and Nikita Petrov? <laughs> Is that, are these actually two separate human beings who are trying to figure shit out? <laughs> it's not clear, but it is, how do I put it? When I have a good conversation, I know that I've had a good conversation, you know? When I'm, when, when, uh, when I have a bad conversation, I know I have a bad conversation. There is a, there's a felt experience of either doing this thing correctly or worthwhile or or something or you know it's it, it it's not it's not happening so to my mind that's kind of all you need you just need to where i don't know if we're ever going to be clear on what is going on but it's much easier to be clear on whether you're playing your part well or not and that is also the part that you can actually affect. And so that that's kind of enough. Wow, that's 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 beautifully said. I I uh almost everything you say or triggers so many uh different thoughts in my head that I, I almost don't know where to begin. Um I part of our design as humans, you know, so Bob Wright, the creator of this side who we 
I do know, I feel like I do know Bob pretty well. And I've spent, uh-huh. unlike you, I've actually, you know, been with Bob face to face many time, times over periods of decades. And, and uh, you know, he focuses on how as animals designed by natural selection, we are, we're designed to get our genes in the next generation. We're not designed right. to be happy. And that's we need Buddhism as the kind of cure for that. The, the, the problem that I have with our design is that we're designed to, uh, to sort of get shit done as efficiently as possible without a lot of excess thinking. And so we become automatons, you know, we become zombies and, um, and that happens to me all the time. And I, I see, uh, you know, suffering, pain, those are, those are a problem, but uh, my struggle is mainly with with the the zombie part of my nature. Right. That yeah. that sort of I end up just sort of sleepwalking through through days. And oh, I hear you. I hear you, man. Yeah. And so then, <laughs> and I do various things to try to wake myself up a little bit. And we're only ever waking up partially. Um, but we we sort of stick our heads above all this. The shit that that uh, that we get mired in day after day, and um, and and we get a little bit of distance from it, and um, and one of the best ways that I have of doing, and you know, other people often are part of the problem, right? But <laughs> other people can also help you get out yeah. of it, and you realize, you know, you're, we're breaking through our shells. We're each of us is trapped in the little sphere of our own consciousness. And um, we're only guessing what's really going on in other people's minds, but um, but now and then we have something that feels like real communication, and you recognize, yeah, this person is just as fucked up and confused as I am, and that makes me feel a little better. And maybe we talk about this, you know, the the mystery of everything in a way that that um, you know we're we're not solving it. But we're sharing our experiences in a way that, for me, makes me feel better. And um, yeah. and that's when, when writing is really working, is when you feel like you're expressing some stuff that you're going through. And then people are responding and saying, hey, yeah. I mean, some people respond and say, you're a goddamn idiot. I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, but others, they sort of understand. And, uh, and that's a nice feeling. So. Um, yeah, I'm glad to be here too, Nikita. Well, there you go. <laughs> See, Trump notwithstanding. Yeah, right. You know what? There was recently a moment where I felt this whole idea, you know, you can think about the, the world as a simulation. As there are different kinds of phrasing, uh, you know, describing this illusory uh, nature of reality. When I saw there's a video... Uh, online, it was, I guess maybe the fires in California uh, are subsiding or, or have, are they over? Jeez, I, have, I haven't read about them in a while. So I assume that means that they're under control. Yeah, but there was a time when they were not under control at all. Yeah. And there is a video online of this woman just driving through. She's on a highway, I guess, some sort of a road. And she's just driving through fire. Fire is everywhere. And she's just saying, oh, my God, oh, my God. And she's trying to get away 
but she's it's literally just fire everywhere to the left of her to the right of her and on the road and she's just trying to get through it and when i saw that with the backdrop of the reality tv star as the president and uh, pepe the frog and Keg the god of chaos being political entities now and people carrying flags of the free republic of kakistan and political rallies the metaphor that that what it didn't even feel like a metaphor it felt i thought maybe different parts of the world are different kinds of illusions and like in russia the russia is a, it's called sometimes a logocentric country meaning literature plays a very big role in how russian reality is experienced and felt And when I saw that video of this woman driving through fire, I thought maybe America is like a computer game. And you guys, it's like you're on one level and the monsters are a certain kind. And uh, and then you get to the next level and suddenly every, it's basically the same terrain, but everything is on fire and Trump is the president and the cops have more gear on them. And it's just, you know, you, you're dealing with a higher level of, of trouble. Um That was a tangent. I thought of, I wanted to say something different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shit's pretty crazy here, but, you know, life goes on. I'm about to celebrate Christmas with my kids. I'm happy about that. Yeah. I see my girlfriend this afternoon, you know? So, Voltaire has this phrase, uh, try not to worry about the world too much, just tend to your own garden. There you go, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that's what... Of course, if your garden is on fire, that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember what I wanted to say. Um, you, you talked about, you know, sleepwalking through life, and we're trying to wake up. I've always had a little problem with this. You know, this is a central metaphor for Buddhism and for other schools of thought. And maybe just because I really like sleeping and I hate it. It's eight. When we started talking, it was 8 a.m. where you are. That's crazy to me to, to wake up at 8 a.m. And, and do these kinds of conversations. And so I've always like, I remember when I was, when I had to wake up in the mornings, one of my favorite songs when I was like in university was uh, the Beatles, I'm only, I'm only sleeping would just ask to leave me the fuck alone. I'm sleeping. This is, yeah, that's a fantasy. Yeah, I'm in a, in a dream. I want to pay attention to the dream. And and that to me, so the, the metaphor, I struggle with the metaphor of we're sleepwalking through life, so we need to wake up. I don't think it's healthy when you're asleep to be freaking out about how you need to wake up. I think you're going to wake up when your body gets enough sleep and your brain gets enough sleep like that thing is there for reason and that leads me to um you know i try to pay attention to dreams and to sleep and more than waking up i think what we want to what i wanted to achieve is something akin to the state of lucid dreaming when you're aware that this is a dream and you There's a so I I get lucid dreams sometimes and there's like a spectrum of that experience. Sometimes you know it's a dream and it is like a simulation that is you can 
like Neo in the Matrix, you can do anything. Or like a god in a little world that you've created, you can do anything and, uh, you know, play around if you want to. My favorite kinds of dreams, though, lucid dreams, are when I'm aware it's dream. I, I understand and sense and experience the reality I'm in as an illusory, you know, dream state. But there's something going on. There are characters, there's a plot, that there is an interaction, there's something to engage with, deal with. And one of the dreams I had like that made an influence on me and is connected to all of these things that we've been talking about, world as communication. Um, so usually in these in these kinds of dreams I have, there are different kinds of characters. There is me who experiences the dream. There are characters who very clearly are just, they have no um, inner life. They are, they're more like, uh, like characters in computer games, you know, NPC kind of characters where it's just, it, those are usually in these dreams, it's some kind of obstruction. It's, it's these, these forces that try to get me forget that I'm in a dream and get me you know, do some, play some fucking game that they have prepared for me, get, get distracted and forget what is going on and, and just, just bog me down in some, some plot. I need to chase somebody or I need to run away from somebody or there's this important thing happening and none of this is, and I forget if I, if I'm, you know, if I don't have enough attention to spare, I might get stuck in that. And then there are characters who are who feel like myself, fellow travelers, who I can talk to and, and see what they think about what's going on. And then there are characters that are very much of the dream world, but there are some weird, colorful, like that's a separate character that has something, some going on. You can engage with them with, with some uh, purpose. And so I had one dream where it started off as, it was not a lucid dream at the beginning, with some, I'm running away from somebody, there's this issue to deal with, there's that issue to deal with, and then slowly I start figuring out that this is a dream. And I meet different kinds of characters like that from, you know, these almost like Agent Smith in the Matrix type characters. It's all the same face. It's the, that, it, the person you're talking to is not the person, it's just this force that, oh shit. That's trying to, you know, um, bog you down. And then there are, and so anyway, in one point of that dream, I was in, I, I managed to get away from these, there were cops chasing me. There was this, there was that. And I, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm stumbling through this. I didn't know I'm going to start sharing my dreams in this conversation. Okay. <laughs> so there is a, at first there were like, I was, I was running away from these cops, I think. And they are like SWAT looking people with like machine guns and bulletproof vests and all that. And at one point I realized, wait, if this is a dream, I don't need to be afraid of their guns. And as soon as they realize that, they, they realize, okay, this strategy is not working anymore. Can't, he's not afraid of this anymore. So they started just making a lot of noise so that I can't talk to other characters in a dream. And then at one point I managed to get away from them 
in some sort of like a, a room where there are no distractions like that. There's none of this chatter or, uh, you know, forces that try to get me to run somewhere. And I was surrounded by these dream characters, very colorful, different, like a set of, of uh, characters of some sort. And they were frustrated. They, they voiced this frustration with me, hoping that maybe I can help them. And the frustration was they said something like, my whole life is like a sentence. I'm, I'm in a loop of some sort. I keep kind of expressing something, but I don't know. I don't even know the meaning of that sentence. Like my whole life is this thing that I have no idea what, what, what to do with it and what's the purpose of it. And I just am stuck in this. And they all had different sentences like that. And I was standing among them and I, I was just going, okay, so you're, what's your thing again? And they would say me, you know, their piece. And I'm, and I would turn to another one and yours is what? And they would say that. And I felt I can maybe help because they are stuck. Each is stuck in, in their own sentence and I can hear different ones and maybe we can figure some, we never figured it out that there was, you know, dream took another turn. But this idea that, you know, if reality is a linguistic kind of thing, and it is factually in some sense, like we know that, you know, we have DNA, that's a sequence of, you know, bits of information, right? Yeah. And then, and then we, that gives rise to our experience. And then we have our own languages and within those those languages, we have stories and sentences that we say and all that. And I feel like what I was trying to do in that dream, try to understand what the message of each of us is and how they can be combined or parsed out and, and maybe try to figure out whether all of these different little narratives tell a meta story of some sort. I think that's the project that we're in. I think this is, we don't know what our part is. We don't know if we're interlocutors or the writer of the story, or we're listening to the story. And we probably are playing all of these parts, you know, at different points of our lives, but you can engage with it and you can try to make it, you know, better, worthwhile, try to find meaning in it. Uh, first of all, I'm really envious that you have dreams like that. My dreams are so boring. Uh, and, and so, uh, I mean, that, that seems to me, that reminds me a lot of the kinds of stuff that, uh, Terrence McKenna, the, you know, the sort of great psychedelic philosopher, performance artist talked about. He, he often talks or talked in his, uh, in his writings and his, his lectures about logos and how mm -hmm. the, you know, for him, God was this kind of linguistic principle. I mean, it was a little obscure that the way he talked about it for me, um, I guess again, because I have more conventional ideas of God, but it sounds very similar to what you're, um, you're describing. And, um, and I, I, but I really like that idea, and it it sort of uh, I don't know it dovetails with um, with this project 
with you know with, with this book that I just wrote, Mind Body Sto- Mind Body Problems. I almost said Mind Body Stories because uh, that's really what it is too. Every one of us has has our own story, and you can see one of the the arguments that I make in my book is that not only do we not have a solution to the mind body problem, we don't even know the the right language. Right. in which to describe the problem or to try to find a solution. And um, and in a way, each of us, you know, if you talk to lots of different philosophers and scientists, you realize that each one of them has their own little language that they're using to just, to try to approach the problem and describe it in a really uh, compelling way. And um, And the diversity is supposed to be a bad thing. And I guess now I think that, the diversity is a good thing that the, the this wonderful mul- multiplicity of stories that we have and languages that we have um, and all the ways that language keeps evolving and changing as culture changes, as we change, that that's, that's wonderful. It means that the, you know, this process is of creation, self-creation is never ending. And, and the, I, you know, I used to think, of course, we have to come up with the answer, the solution. And now I think that would be horrible because we would be – that means that we would have – we haven't really found the solution because there is no solution. But we can convince ourselves that we found it, and that would be the end of our self-discovery. That would be a tragedy, not a, yeah. not a triumph. Um, yeah, it's also like if you do look at this as a conversation, then – you know, if you found the answer, that means the conversation is over. Like if, if that's, you know, McLuhan had this idea of medium, medium is the message, right? The the technology that you use to transmit the message shapes that message, defines that message. I think that that's also a rich idea that can be applied to everything in the world. And one way to look at this is the language that we choose defines what we're going to say. Right. Even in like, I know English and Russian, there are things that can be said in Russian that can't be said in English and the other way around. Mm. And if you're setting this whole project up as we're looking for the answer, then if you manage to find it, done. Yeah. You're, <laughs> you're done. And, and, and I mean, maybe that's, I don't know. Maybe if you're really tired, you want to look at life like that. When you're, you know, maybe when you're depressed, but, but if you look at this as a conversation that, like the best conversation that happen in life are multidimensional and have more than just, you're not just looking for one answer to one problem. You're also, you know, sharing your feelings, having fun, making jokes, uh, talking about open-ended questions that are not supposed to have an answer. Yeah. um, You know, unfortunately, I have to end this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) I've got to do all these. I got to do these Christmas chores today. But but this has been fantastic, Nikita. I had no idea what we were going to talk about today. And Well, uh, me neither, as I said. Yeah. Well, I had a little inclination, but... Not more than that. But I, I think we've, uh, I think we've covered a lot of ground. I mean, we haven't come up with the answer, but 
you know, uh, we've, uh, yeah, we've, 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 we've gone some places that, uh, that I didn't expect to be going this morning at eight yeah. o'clock in the morning, yeah. <laughs> three days before that Christmas. Was, that was a lot of fun though. Yeah. For me too. Okay. So maybe, what do you say? Maybe we do it uh, again sometime. I'll talk to you anytime. You just, you just tell me when you're ready for it and uh, you know how to find me. Perfect. Sounds good. All right. Okay. So I'll let you go to do your chores, okay. Christmas chores. <laughs> and the conversation will continue. All right. Bye, Nikita. Bye.
Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.